So we're going to get started. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 16 and 17 tonight. Remember, we are in the middle of a study going through uh, sort of a historical and theological approach. And some weeks are going to skew more toward the historical approach, and some weeks are going to skew more toward the theological approach. And so it's going to feel a lot more like a Bible study. And tonight is definitely one of those nights where we're going to look um, really kind of what is happening in the, in the chapters of 16 and 17 of Genesis and we've taken, uh, we're going to take a bit of a slow track through Abraham's story because it is so important to the overall uh, picture of the Old Testament. And so we're going we're gonna to take a little bit longer look at Abraham. And then once we get past Abraham, we'll start speeding up and, and we'll kind of skip through a lot of things uh, really quickly. But, but we're going to pick a few characters throughout to kind of light on, and, and Abraham's one of them. Um, now, tonight happens to be one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, chapter 16, because it is, it's so funny. It is just, it's hysterical. And uh, I think anyway, but I have a sadistic sense of humor. And so <laughs> I, I think it's really funny. And I think you'll see the humor in it in a minute, uh, hopefully, but, uh, or else I just kind of put myself out there. Um, but, <laughs> but just a review of where we've been so far, you'll remember that God pro- makes a promise to Abraham or re- to Abram to, to make of him the, the father of a great nation. And yet at the same time, he remains childless. And that's where we are in the story. He, he doesn't have a child. And so he's sort of thinking about different ways in which this can come about. How, how can I actually be the father of a great nation if I don't have any children? And so we talked about last week that there's Eleazar of Damascus, who is a slave, the chief, you might say the chief slave, the head slave or whatever, in his uh, household and kind of put in charge of his estate, and he has Abraham has more or less adopted him into the family, and so that when he dies, he's going to hand to Eleazar of Damascus everything, and so he kind of presents to God this this sort of notion: I've adopted Eleazar of Damascus to be my heir, and I, I'm childless. I don't know what you're going to give to me. You keep making me these promises. In chapter 15, he says this, I, I, but I, I don't know what, what's going to happen because Eleazar right now is my heir. And so God tells him what? What does God tell him? What's that? Yeah, and this is a really important statement in chapter 15 because he says, no, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to have a, an heir, and it, it literally is of your own loins. You're going to have an heir of you, Abraham. It's not going to be Eleazar of Damascus. Okay, now I know. It's going to be of me. All right, good deal. That comes in handy for chapter 16, obviously. But, uh, so he, he knows, okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come from me. It's not going to be Eleazar of Damascus. Now, we continually see throughout this narrative from the very beginning in chapter 12 when God tells him that he's going to make him a father of great nation and he's going to give to him the land that he's currently in, the land of, of Canaan, um, he, he, he tells him all of this, and immediately those promises are put to the test. He goes into, he, there's a famine across the land, and so he has to go into Egypt. Um, he is there in Egypt, and he is tested with his own life. He thinks that he's going to be put to death if they think that you're my wife. And so he tells Sarah, we're going to lie, and we're going to say you're my sister. 
And so constantly this, these promises that God makes to him are put to the test. And then last week, of course, we saw um, that not only is God trustworthy, he continues to uh, fulfill the promise that he made to him. We've seen a couple weeks ago where he, he says, look, not only am I going to make of you a great nation, but through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And what do we see except that everywhere he goes, when somebody offends him, or like Pharaoh, when somebody takes uh, his wife, what happens to Pharaoh? He's, he's cursed. When he, they take Lot, his, his nephew, and they take him captive, he goes in there and just whips him up really good and takes Lot back. And when Lot is with him, Lot is prosperous and is blessed. Lot moves off into the land of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and all of a sudden it doesn't go well so well for Lot anymore. And so all of the things that are coming to Abraham are directly from the Lord's hand, and he's, he's blessing him. And we've seen this promise fulfilled over and over and over again. And then we saw uh, also that God considered him righteous because of the faith that Abraham had in him. It was by faith that Abraham was, was made righteous. And so the Lord last week offers to Abraham a sign that he is going to be faithful. And what is this sign? What's the sign that he gives to him? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sign of the covenant. And... What, what is the sign? Yeah, he's pledging to keep the covenant. So he tells Abram to get these um, animals, these three animals, cut them in half, lay them across from each other. And then in the night, Abram sees smoking, uh, uh, smoke and a fire pot walking between the animals. And it's a testimony to him that the, that sign of the covenant is basically the one that walks between these two animals. If they don't fulfill their end of the covenant, then they'll be like these animals. And we saw last week that what a, what a crazy foreshadowing this is, that God himself doesn't require Abram to walk between the animals, but he himself walks through the animals. And we know that he's going to fulfill his end of the covenant by taking on the curse. He's, he's actually going to endure the covenant curse in, in Jesus. And so, uh, here, so we, here we have chapter 15 ends, and then chapter 16 begins. And Abram is, mind you, still childless. And so here we start with Genesis chapter 16. and It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said, to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Okay, so of all the cockamamie solutions that you could possibly come up with, Abraham sitting on his couch watching ESPN, and his wife comes over to him with a solution she thinks is brilliant. Here's what we'll do. You'll have a child by my Egyptian servant. We can't relate to this, okay? This is, the, especially like in a Christian home, this, we just, you just cannot imagine this ever happening, right? That this would ever, but then we'll see in just a moment, after it happens, all of a sudden it becomes really relatable, as far as the outcome of what takes place next, right? Okay, but here, here is... Now, what we do know is that uh, probably 
Abram and his wife were familiar with a law code that was uh, developed early on by what really became the Babylonians and that allowed, permitted a childless couple to have a child by a slave, by a servant. And so that, that's probably what's going on. They're, they're probably going to their wisdom, but that's exactly the point, is that uh, immediately after God promises him a, a son by his own loins, Sarah goes, I know. I mean, she's like near 100 years old, so she's, she's you know, realizing, look, this is probably not going to happen for me, so here's what's, what I'm going to do. And she supplies a human solution to the problem. She works out her own wisdom. Now, the interesting part of chapter 16 is that it probably is written to very closely parallel the story of Adam and Eve. And the reason is because there's a couple of linguistic parallels, words and phrases that are near identical from the two stories. And I want to show you those right now. So first, we see in the story in Genesis with Adam and Eve that Adam, when he's punished in 317, I believe, he is punished. And what does God say to him? He's punished for listening to his wife. You're listening to the voice of your wife. That's the phrase that he uses. In fact, it's the exact same phrase that is used of Abram in chapter 16. It is proof positive the husband should never listen to the voice of his wife. It's always, it's always sin. So you just know, like, you're not listening to me. You tune me out. The Bible told me so. I can't help it. I'm not I'm supposed to. No, but he, Adam is punished uh, for, for listening to the voice of his wife. That's precisely the phrase that's used. Is the exact same phrase that we see here in, at the end of verse 3. Um, it says, or at the end of verse 2, it says, And Abram listened to the voice of, in this case it's Sarai, instead of, he calls her by a proper name instead of, uh, instead of his wife. Then we also see when this whole thing takes place, Eve, uh, back, back to the story of Adam and Eve, what did she do? She took the fruit and she gave it to her husband who was there with her. In Genesis 16.3, we see Sarai took her maidservant and gave her to Abram. Now, incidentally, uh, this also lines up with the theme of what's happening in the story. The themes of both stories are the same. And I think this is a very significant point that both Sarah and Eve are supplementing the plans of God with human wisdom. So they're both looking at what God has given to them. Now with Eve, he's told them, look, you can eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden. I've given you all the fruit. I've given the plants to the animals, now, or the, the grass to the animals. I've given you the fruit of any tree in the garden. And you are supposed to not only be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but you're to subdue it too. You have dominion over the earth. 
And so what does Eve do? But she's standing near the tree and, or she's standing somewhere in the garden and the serpent comes over to her. Has God really said that you can't eat of the fruit of, of the trees of the field? And no, 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 no. He's just told us about that tree. We can't even touch it. Now she's learned this. We saw a few weeks ago, we learned, she learned this from her husband. Her husband was given the command. He's the one that told her, we can't even go near it. And so she's like, hey, look, we can't even go near this thing. But when the serpent starts talking, what, does she, what happens? She sees that the fruit on the tree is good for food and is profitable to make one wise. We, I've got these chores that I've been given. I've got this job that I have to do. And the fruit of this tree is going to help me to do it better. See, the sin itself that Eve is engaged in has a certain logic to it, doesn't it? It does. All sin has a logic to it. Any sin that you look at before you do it has a certain logic to it. It makes sense at the time. And then after you get on the other side of it, you're like, well, that was stupid. Okay, (laughs) right? We see the same thing play out in Genesis chapter 16. Is that the sin has a certain logic to it. Here is... Uh, Sarai, she's been told, no doubt, by her husband that, look, the, the son that God has promised to give me is going to come from my own loins. I've got a genius solution. This is, clearly, this is the answer. You can go to my maidservant and have a, have a child by her. It makes perfect sense. But then there's also some other, some other things that uh, make them close parallels. Or one other thing, one other big thing um, similar to Adam and Eve, Sarai shifts the blame for the problem. We're going to read that in just a second. And Abram shrugs off the responsibility. Back in, back in uh, chapter 3, or, or chapter three of, of Genesis, all of them are blame-shifting. God comes down and he says, look, who told you that you were naked? Abram's the first one. He says, look, the woman you gave me, she deceived me or she, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Okay, but you gave her to me. You knew this was going to happen. And, and, and Eve also passes, oh, look, the serpent, he deceived me. Okay? Sarah is about to shift the responsibility uh, as well, shift the blame. But the other really big factor in both of these, where are the men? What are they doing? Adam has been charged with keeping the grounds of the Garden of Eden and spreading it. So any unclean thing is not supposed to enter it. And the first thing that we see in chapter 3 is an unclean thing, a serpent moving in. All right, that's a direct violation of his responsibility. He's supposed to, everybody that's reading it is going, wait wait a minute, whoa, this is not good. Well, Abraham's been the one that's been given the voice of God. Here's the promise has been given to him. And here's the idea. Sleep with my, my maidservant. What? Brilliant. Look at what happens. So, verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. 
I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarai comes up with the plan, gives her to uh, her husband, and here Abram is silent the whole time. He's complicit in all of this. He's not leading in this charge. He's not saying, no, Sarah, look, we're going to wait until the Lord tells us what we need to do. Now, understand, Abram knows that he's supposed to do this. God has been the one to call him out of Ur to the Chaldeans and tell, and tell him the land to which he's directing him, right? He's been the one to direct him the entire way. He's been the one to come to him by night, make all the promises, tell him what's going to happen, punish Pharaoh. All of those kinds of things have been directly at God's hand. Abram knows that he's supposed to wait on the Lord. So it's not as though that he's innocent in this and he thought, well, hey, yeah, this is a good plan. No, he's not. He's being silent and his wife is leading. That's the problem. And it's pointed out in the text. Abram listened to the voice of his wife in the same way that Adam is silent as Eve is dealing with the serpent. She takes the fruit and she, what, hands it to her husband who is with her. Silently complicit in the whole deal, right? So, it's unrelatable up to this point until Hagar conceives And as you can imagine, now we can all relate to the story. Because if this were to really take place, this is, of course, exactly what would happen. Hagar looks at Sarai with contempt. She's probably, I don't know, call me crazy, just a little bit jealous about the fact that Hagar conceived so quickly. Uh, Well, we're not told how fast, but we get the impression that it was pretty fast. And so she, she conceives, and she looked at me with contempt. She tells this to to Abram, her husband, but not just that she looked at me, but this is your fault, (laughs) right? That's exactly what she says to him. This is your fault that this took place. And of course, Abram's like, well, do whatever you want, right? He just kind of lays back again and just says, well, do whatever you want with her. And she's allowed to dismiss her out of the home. But the point is, I think that this is written to kind of closely parallel the story between Um, between Adam and Eve, and it it sort of gives you the idea of exactly what the narrator thinks of the situation that's taking place here. Yeah, makes sense? Questions? All right. All right. So, once again, we see God faithful to his promise. So in spite of Abram's twisted logic, God promises to bless Ishmael and his line. So he says, uh, look at verse, uh, where are we, 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Uh, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, he said, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered 
for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone in everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well that she was standing by was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called, his name, called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. All right, so in spite of all of this twisted logic, what's going to happen to Hagar and Ishmael? They're going to be blessed. In fact, the angel of the Lord, who we're going to talk a little bit more about next week, the angel of the Lord gives to Hagar nearly the exact same promise the Lord gives to Abram. You notice that? Nearly the exact same promise that, the, that he gives to, to Abram. And so we know that this is an extension of the same promise that he gave to Abram initially, right? Um, so, but here's, here's the other complexity of this. Uh, so Hagar escapes toward Egypt, and we know it was towards Egypt, and I'll show you why, uh, when the angel of the Lord finds her and offers her a similar blessing that he gave to, to Abram. Now, the place where she's at, remember, what's her nationality? Egyptian. She's Egyptian. We think, at least the last place in the story Abram is mentioned, is near Hebron. So the, he's under the oaks of Mamre when he goes to find Lot, and so then he kind of moves around, and maybe he's back in the same place. Um, and so she goes from wherever he is, probably Hebron, and she is found now at the bigger circle on the map down here at the bottom, Be'er Lahai Roy, which is, uh, he sees me, okay? So here is this uh, well. So where is she headed to? She's headed back home, all right? So she's headed towards Egypt when he finds her. Um, now, there are, let me turn the page here. There are uh, some interesting things about um, Hagar's position and what she's doing. And the, the, because if, if you think, the, the thing that I think is most vital when we study the Bible is not simply to just say what happened, but really to ask the question, why are these details included? Because the, there, there's a, don't forget, there is a person writing this. There is a Holy Spirit that is superintending this. And there is a point that's being made by the narrative, okay? So we have to ask the question, well, there's a lot of details here about where she is and, and what she's doing and what's said to her that might be significant. And why? Now, who's reading this for the first time? Do we know? We don't know for sure, but who do we think is reading it for the first time? When they're reading Genesis for the first time, it's been written down. Who's the first audience? People going into the promised land. So we, we're 
we know that at least a significant portion of the first five books of the Bible is written by Moses. He's told to write these things down. And so he does. And so a significant portion of the first five books of the Bible is written by himself, by Moses. And the people that are receiving it for the first time, at least the significant portion of it, are the people that are getting ready to go into the promised land, right? Well, it is interesting then that some of Hagar's story actually lines up in a significant way with uh, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and wandering through the wilderness. Um, so what I have here in the, on the handout is, is the annunciation and career of Hagar also foreshadows Israel's exodus, um, their flight to the wilderness, and an encounter with the angel of the Lord. We know, of course, the angel of the Lord meets them in the wilderness and goes before them and uh, leads them on their way. So they have this encounter with the angel of the Lord. Again, we're going to talk about more, more about him next week. Um, there is obviously the flight to the wilderness, but then there's Israel's exodus. Why do they, uh, why do they leave? What's said of, of Egypt, of the Egyptians when they leave? Somebody read De- Deuteronomy 26, 6 to 7. We see this at the end of uh, verse 6. Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Um, so it, at least there's a, 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 maybe a reasonable conclusion that the original audience that's reading Hagar's story couldn't help but be reminded of their own journey through the wilderness as they meet to the angel of the Lord, fleeing the harsh oppression, same phrasing that's being used there, uh, the harsh oppression of the Egyptians, they're now in the wilderness and they are also being led by the angel of the Lord preparing themselves to go back into the promised land where he's encouraging them to go. Um, so it's possible that the, then the point of the story is if the compassionate God answered Hagar's cry, how much more will he, the children of Israel, as they're in the desert? Now, when it comes to themes like that and parallels, we can debate, but uh, I think it's, it's a reasonable conclusion to draw. Go ahead. Uh, indeed, they do. Um, so I've, talk, I've said a few times on Sunday as we've gone through Matthew, Matthew picks up on the parallels between Christ's story and Israel's story. And he's intentionally showing the parallels of those two stories. Um, and even in John's own proclamation of what he's doing, uh, he's a vo- the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You, do you know what, where this comes from? You remember where, the, where his statement, uh, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord? 
Yeah, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. You know what's significant about Isaiah chapter 40? Uh, I had a professor who used to say, uh, well, I graduated from seminary, so I know great and wonderful and wise things. And as a graduate of seminary, I know chapter 40 follows directly after chapter 39. Um, it's much funnier when he says it. But uh, so chapter 39 ends with a, essentially a promise that the children of Israel are not going to be killed and hauled off into captivity by the Assyrians, but they are going to be held, off, held into captivity by the Babylonians. And chapter 40 comes in proclaiming that they're not always going to be there. In fact, he's going to send a messenger, someone to stand on this side of the Jordan and say, prepare the wilderness. Remember, we're looking at Mesopotamia. We know the geography. Babylon is where? To the east. It's in Mesopotamia. They're in the land of Canaan. What's in between them? Desert. So he says, pave the highways in the desert. Clear the wilderness. Make it flat. Why? Because you're not always going to be in Babylon. I'm going to call you back. John says, I'm that guy. You've been back in the land for 400 years or 500 years, but you're still in exile. I'm calling you back out of the land. So as he's calling them back out of Babylon, out of exile, where does Jesus come? Out of Egypt. And where does he come? Not through the Red Sea. He comes through the River Jordan because they're coming out of Babylon, right? It's paralleling Israel's story as John the Baptist has called them out of Babylon and back into the Promised Land. Well, here comes Jesus coming out of Egypt and he comes right through the waters of baptism. This is paralleling Israel's story. He is Israel coming out of exile, living for them, right? He's their substitute. He's our substitute, right? So, um, yes, it, it, it's all like the, the New Testament author. One thing that uh, should open your eyes, and I hope, hope it does, is that the Holy Spirit is not only superintending this, but the composition, the writing of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, is just genius. It, it, there's no way to get around it, but it, it is a, a literary masterpiece. When you look at it, there, if you understand what's being communicated all throughout, it's amazing. It's, and yes, well, there's questions that we still have about it. There's, there's things that we, we don't understand and we have trouble answering and we... You know, we have to think about a long time, and, and sometimes somebody goes, somebody does their PhD on it, their dissertation, and they go, look, I, I, look at this problem that was a problem for us, but, but look at what's being said here. And all of us go, why didn't we see that before? Of course that's what's happening here. And it, and it, it comes into focus. But when you look at the, the text that's being written, it's genius. And the New Testament authors pick up on this like it's second nature to them. Um, okay, now that was all for free. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so then we get to chapter 17, and here uh, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Thank the Lord, I don't have to say Abram anymore. I can say Abraham, uh, but I'll probably say Abram now for the next six weeks. Um, and it means a father of a multitude. 
So he changes his name to Abraham, and it means father in multitude. But I want you to see the pattern that, un, uh, that develops in chapter 17. First, you have the promise to Abraham that it, well, there's a name change and the promise that he's going to be the father of multitude. Then there is what? What happens next? He's given circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Then the very next thing that happens in the story is Sarai, her name is changed to Sarah, which means princess. So now we have another name change. And she's told she's going to be the mother or the the princess of many kings, many nations are going to come from her. So similar promise that was given. And then what do we have next? Abram then goes through with the circumcision. So it goes Promise and name change, circumcision. Promise and name change, circumcision. And so what we get at the very end uh, is this, um, that, that Abraham carries out the sign of circumcision on himself and his whole household. So uh, he's given the name father of multitude. Uh, following his name change, he's given circumcision as part of the covenant that he must follow. And then Sarai's name is changed to Sarah, which means princess. She's going to be the, the mother, if you will, of uh, many nations and, and kings are going to come from her. And hence the name princess. Uh, and then she, uh, and then we see Abraham carrying out the sign of circumcision. So let's read chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, now, now what have you noticed? What's different about this promise than has been in the previous What? What's different about this promise? It's not just an empty promise. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something Abram's got to do on the other side of this. So before we, we see a lot of uh, Abram, you know, you, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going I'm to make of you many nations, many nations, many nations, many nations. Now, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to do this, and here's what you're going to do. Okay, and what is it that he has to do? He says, uh, Behold, my covenant is... uh, Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you uh, and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between uh, me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money for, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who 
is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any circumcised, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. For he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall, become, shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you and uh, at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, and bought, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised of the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all, men, all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with uh, money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Okay, now their uh, circumcision was, at least we have some evidence it was practiced before Abraham, so it wasn't like it was a total foreign concept to him, but it becomes this sign of the covenant, and the circumcision was an expression of uh, faith that God's promises would be realized. Okay, now if you, if you think about this, here is a man who is old and who is promised, you are going to have children. And the sign of the covenant that Abraham receives by faith, remember we learned that back in chapter 15, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now a sign of his faith in the Lord is to, is to take the reproductive organ through which the promise will be fulfilled and inflict it. All right? It makes us shudder. I get it. And there's not going to be any images, so we're good. All right? So, like, that's, <laughs> we're just dealing with words here. Okay. Um, but, but he is... Um, sorry, I lost my place. There, there, the sign of the covenant is, is really inflicting the, the reproductive organ through which the descendants of Abraham are going to come. So imagine what kind of test of faith this is for Abraham. Not only is he 99 years old, to have to believe this, but then there's intentional infliction of, of pain, of harm, I guess you would say, that's coming from it. Now, the other thing to note of this act of circumcision is 
that it's not only a covenant sign, but it's so important. Get this. Think about this for just a second. It's so important that failure to do it is excommunication from the family. Just think about that for just a second. Excommunication from the family. What else is like this? Not much. We all have black sheep in our family. We all have those people that wander astray. Every last one of us. But what do we say about them? They're still family. Right? If they call you up and say, I really want to come to Thanksgiving dinner. You might want to tell them no. Sometimes in your sinful heart, you might tell them no. <laughs> but they're family. Right? We, we, we forgive them. Maybe even reluctantly, we let them back in. Not when it comes to this. The covenant that is received from Abraham by faith is inclusion in the family. And the circumcision is a sign of that covenant. So if you think about what's happening here, when a, 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 a male son of Abraham who knows the story of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, who by faith believed in God's promises, and now I bear the marks on my own body of the faith that he had in God, it reminds me of the faith that I should have in God that one day he is going to redeem all of us, that he's going to send a promised seed who is going to redeem all of us. So what happens then when that son goes into the land of Canaan and is tempted to marry a Canaanite woman? Well, on their wedding night, he takes off his clothes. And what does he see on his body but the marker of the covenant? That's the point. That's the initial point, at least. That's the point. Is that what is evident on you, what you bear with you forever is a reminder of the faith that Abraham had in the promises of God. And that faith equaled the inclusion into God's family. He is counted as righteous. Don't think this falls on deaf ears when it comes to the New Testament authors. <laughs> they pick up on this sign of faith, and even before the New Testament, even before the New Testament, very early on, there is underscored the importance of circumcision that was not merely the circumcision of the foreskin, but was actually the circumcision of the heart. Somebody read there Deuteronomy 10, 16, and 36. And so what is Moses telling the children of Israel except that what God is going for is not simply the, the circumcision of your foreskin, but that you actually model the faith that Abraham had in the Lord. That's what he's going after. And so the circumcision that he's really after is the circumcision of the heart. 
Circumcision became known as uh, the thing which makes the organ work properly. So um, Moses will tell the Lord that I have a, my mouth, I stutter, I'm not circumcised of the lips. The, uh, I think it's of the lips. He, he did, his, my mouth doesn't work right, right? So then there's, in Jeremiah, there's the cir- circumcision of the ears. You, you don't hear me, right? You don't hear and respond. Your heart doesn't work right. It needs to be circumcised to function properly. So that circumcision becomes this way of saying, like, that is the way it's supposed to function. That's, that's what causes it to function correctly. Medically, that's not what we're talking about, all right? But in terms of faith, we're saying, yes, that, that, that's what he's going after. That's what this, the point of circumcision is, is a reminder that it's supposed to be about the circumcision of your heart. And that you're supposed to believe as Abraham believed. And that, that equals inclusion into the family of God. So therefore, refusal to do it is not simply that you're refusing to cut off skin. It's that you don't believe like Abraham believed. Questions, comments? Well, depends on when you're talking about. Like right now? Like now, today's, today's day and age? Well, I, don't know I think they still do. As far as I know, they still do. They stop in Joshua. Uh, somewhere around Joshua, they stop. Joshua has them all circumcised again as a rededication of the covenant. Does this ring a bell? Yes? Okay, I'm not making this up. This happened. Right, okay. Good. Um, but uh, so there, there's a point where they stop. But when they stop, it's a sign that they've fallen away from the covenant, that they stopped believing like Abraham did. So there are, there are these times in the biblical narrative where they do stop. But um, as far as I know today, they still do. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm nearly, yeah, I'm, ne- I'm nearly pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, now, now, I suppose there are, as far as your, the second part of your question, there are people, Christians, that do it today probably because... I don't know, they consider themselves that it's part of God's command. I don't know. But um, Paul's pretty clear that it's not. We, more than anything, do it to fit in. <laughs> I mean, to be honest with you. Um, no, I think, well, this is kind of weird, I, uh, sort of awkward, but <laughs> for, for, for me to talk about, because I'm not a doctor, uh, I mean, I, I do think there's a, uh, it's harder to take care of, I think. Uh, uncircumcised. But I, I don't know that that has anything to do with it. I think more than anything, it's, you know, to fit in. Yes? Am I right? Yeah. Parents that have had boys? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah I mean... Yeah. I, I, now, they, they really ask you. Uh, yeah, I mean, with both of ours, they, they, they asked us if that's what we wanted to have done. So we waited until the eighth day, and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, I wasn't in the hospital last night. Yeah, no, we came back. The eighth day, we, no, just kidding. No. What's that? They, they, apparently, they, they've, um, you know, I've read some medical things that say, and David, you can correct me, obviously, if I'm wrong here, but, and, I read it with a little bit of skepticism that apparently like 
at, on the eighth day, there's, there's a high level of some sort of blood clotting agent that comes into... I don't know how true that is, but um, it, it, it's interesting nonetheless. I wouldn't hang my hat on it. What is it? A vitamin K injection as a newborn, so you can go ahead and develop the clotting factor. Is that right? Interesting. Interesting. So there you go. It's almost like God knew what he's doing. I don't know. I don't know. That can't be the reason. Uh, no. Yeah, other, other questions? Good question. Comments? Concerns? Always listen to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what the Bible says, Richard. I follow the Bible. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you, Jeff, were you raising your hand? Yeah, look at his abundance of faith. Yeah, right. It's nice to know that, you know, God counts that as, you know, noticeable faith. Imperfect faith. The standard isn't quite so. There, there, yeah, well, honestly, Abraham's both, both, I mean, Hebrews 11 points to his faith. He is an example of, of, of great faith, not simply because of his bouts with doubt, but, but that he carried through with what God was telling him to do. Go to the land of Canaan. So he does. <laughs> you know, circumcise yourself at 99 years old. So he does. Um, I think even in, I mean, to be honest, even with Sarah, Sarah and Abraham's uh, decision that they make in chapter 16, they're still saying, well, if God says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. But their problem is that they don't just wait on the Lord to provide it. They try to provide it for themselves, right? Um, and there's no doubt that it's depicted as, nah, that's not the ideal way. It, it brings up a lot of questions, too, about um, plural marriages, and th- these are rampant throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see it tons with David and Solomon and and, and a lot of people will look at that and go, well, how, how is it that they're able to marry all these women? And now we, it's ex- expressly forbidden, but look at David. He's a man after God's own heart, and he has all these women, and Solomon, and they builds the temple of God, and he's got all these you know, 700 concubines and 300 wives, and how, how is this possible? If you notice, in the way that the stories play out, it almost never ends well, right? I mean, there's hardly a soul. I'd struggle to think of one who had this plural marriage that, it, that there wasn't some massive catastrophe expressly because of the many women that they had, right? And so th- there's, there's that factor going on too that I think is you know, particularly interesting. Yeah, any other questions?
can't let Tom have six minutes. <laughs> All right, I guess we will. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this word and, and um, just the way it's all put together that uh, it's so beautiful and the point that the scriptures make uh, to us to trust in you in spite of our circumstances um, is one that is so important for us to understand today and that all of these stories as ancient as they are still speak loud and clear to every generation. Uh, I'm so grateful for that and uh, what a blessing it is to be able to um, study it every day. Uh, how wonderful of a gift that is. Um, so I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and also it reminds us to pray for those, our brothers and sisters around the world, the Patricks um, who are right now, no doubt, uh, wondering what their next day looks like. But that's, you know, even a small thing compared to our brothers and sisters who are born in those countries that are suffering under the persecution, being put in jail and being killed and tortured because they believe the testimony of Scripture and they believe in Jesus Christ. And um, we lift them up and we remember them and we... Um, Lord, we desire their endurance and their perseverance through persecution. Pray you be with them and help just to even lift them up. Um, give them encouragement, even today, even right now, um, that they may have encouragement in their suffering. We pray for the Patricks that you would keep them there for a long time that we would be able to go see them, build a partnership with them, continue to go visit them and work with them in ministry and see fruit in, in the lives of the people that they're sharing the gospel with. And that all of this terrible and vile persecution that China is undergoing by this ruthless dictator uh, would be the most wild and fervent spread of the kingdom that that country has ever seen. And uh, we, we pray that that would happen. And Lord, allow us to help it in some way. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.